Again, I'd say a word of thanks to our worship ministry for leading us in worship, and we look forward to our time together tonight as we'll gather for our Christmas musical. Well, here at First Baptist, you know we've had a theme that's guided us this entire year as we have been exploring this theological vocabulary, biblical vocabulary, and we have been looking at all these words that begin with the prefix re. This year has been about re-everything. And so our theme for Advent is remember. And we've talked about this already, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word zakar, to remember, is used over 200 times in our Old Testament. And it can have um, the idea of appropriate actions included with the act of remembering. So when that word is used, sometimes in the Old Testament, it just means to call to mind. But it can also mean to take action once you've called something to mind, and it's used that way commonly. So when God remembers, he engages or acts appropriately. And we began the Advent season with a celebration of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. And then last Sunday, we looked at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and reminded ourselves that God remembered to prepare the way for the Messiah. This morning, I want us to stay on the first page of Luke. We'll spend some time on this page. It's, it's a long page in our Bibles, and it's filled with so much information, inspiration. And so we'll do that again today. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll invite you to look with me at Luke, the very first page. I've entitled the message today, God Remembered His Promise. We'll read a text where we enter the story somewhat midstream. God has appeared to Mary, and we will now hear Mary's song. In our first worship service this morning at 8.30, our ensemble sang the Magnificent Mary's Song, and I want us to look at it this morning. So again, we'll look at Luke, page 1, verse 46. It's our custom in our church to honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel is read, so I invite you to stand if you're able as we hear this reading from the gospel. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'll begin today where I began last Sunday morning, and that is with the meta-narrative. In other words, the big story, the, the overarching story. Um, God's promise of redemption culminates in the miracle of the incarnation. The focus of this story, the Christmas story, is Jesus. Now, I'll just remind us 
We talked a little bit about this last week, but when we read our Bibles, we know that there is this meta-narrative, this grand story, this cosmic story, if you will, that's underneath the narratives of the Bible. Or you might look at it a different way. It overlays the narratives of the Bible. So when we come to a story like the one we're reading now at Christmas time, this is not an aberration. This is the unfolding of a cosmic drama that has emerged, stemmed from the very heart, mind, and imagination of God himself. And so as this cosmic drama unfolds, we read all of these stories. They're not interruptions, if you will. They, they are actually a part of the grand story. And this one in particular today connects to this ancient story. If, if you want to understand the Christmas story, then you, you have to embrace this idea of the meta-narrative. We have to go all the way back to the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. The third page. You, you remember what happens on the third page. Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden. You remember this story? And God, in the cool of the day, comes walking through the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve are hiding. And you remember they're hiding because they're ashamed. They've sinned. And God tells them, who, who told you that you were naked? Why, why are you hiding? And then he asks them, have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The, the, the tree that I said to you specifically, do not eat this fruit. And Adam and Eve, of course, by that time had sinned. And everything now has been unleashed. And so we read God's response. And we just see what happens to humanity. And new things become a reality for human beings. Things like blame and shame and death. God told Adam, the day that you eat of this, you'll die. Now, he didn't die right then, but he did die. And death was introduced into God's world. But then God said this. He... he expressed his disappointment in Genesis 3. He shared his judgment. He even said to Eve that the kind of dominion that I originally designed you for, which was for you to share with me in exercising dominion over creation, because of this sinfulness, God said, now your desire is going to be for your husband. And now what's going to unfold is the powerful are going to oppress the weak and the vulnerable. And think about how many women have been oppressed by men who've abused them. Think about the shame and the blame and the hurt and the guilt and the pain that has ensued because of this decision by Adam and Eve. But then God said this, Genesis 3 verse 15, the first prophecy in the Bible. God said to the serpent in judgment, he said, you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. Very interesting the way that's phrased in our Old Testament in Hebrew. The seed of the woman. Now we all know that in Hebrew thought, the man has the seed, not the woman. But God said, the seed of the woman. And then he prophesied that the offspring of, this, of the woman would one day crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. Well, then the story unfolds, and we read the story of the Bible, and it is the unfolding cosmic drama, and God is at work in the midst of all of it. We come to Genesis 12, and God singles out one man in his family, Abraham, 
at the time, Abram. And he says, you obey me, you keep my commands, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. And so there's a promise that God is going to bring a blessing to all peoples of the world through Abraham's family. And then Abraham's family becomes the steward of the promises of God. And they have that boy, Isaac. He's the son of promise, Abraham and Sarah. And then God calls all of Abraham's children in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests, be a holy nation, to represent him, to steward this promise for the rest of the world. And so the promise is given to Israel in the story of the Old Testament. As this drama unfolds, is Israel shepherding and stewarding the great promise of God. But then God begins to speak in a different and a unique way as the story unfolds. He begins to whisper in the ear of the prophets. And the prophets share a word of conviction and challenge to their own generation. But God gives them the ability to glimpse beyond their own horizon. And they begin to see a new day coming. A day that belongs to the Lord. And the prophets start calling it the day of the Lord. And then God lets them know through his inspiration of his spirit that there will be a special person, there will be an anointed one who will usher in this new day. There will be a new covenant. And this anointed one, this Messiah, this promised one will be the one through whom he brings about his very kingdom on this earth. So the prophets began to speak and write about and long for this anointed one. And God pointed his people to the day when this promise would be fulfilled. And here's what I want us to know this morning. God remembers his promises. And he keeps them. And so this cosmic drama overlays the narrative that we read at Christmas. Here's the fascinating thing about it. It's somewhat mysterious to us. But somehow this cosmic drama intersects the human stage. And we read about it this morning. This time on the human stage, we find Mary and Joseph. Last week, it was Zechariah and Elizabeth. And John the Baptist. This week, Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph must decide to respond to God's invitation with faith and obedience. Mary and Joseph are on the human stage. This cosmic drama, somehow, God's sovereign will is carried out on a human stage through human beings like me and you, just real people living our real lives, making real choices in the everyday of our lives. And that gets woven into this grand story. So Mary and Joseph, their, their lives are like threads in the hands of God, and he's going to weave their story into this incredible, beautiful tapestry that he's making of his creation. Last week, it was Zechariah. Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth, God is my oath. So Luke's gospel opens with this declaration, Zechariah and Elizabeth, God remembers his oath. God's been silent for 400 years, and the children of Israel have waited, and Luke opens his gospel with God remembers, and he remembers his oath, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, once again, are like threads in the needles in the hands of Almighty God. And then we come to today's story, Mary and Joseph. I'd like for us today, if we could, somehow enter into this story. I want you to think about Mary and Joseph. I know you've read a lot about Mary. We've told this story many times, and we've read it many times, certainly every year at Christmas. But think about Mary. As best we know, Mary's probably around 15 years old, 14 years old at this point in her life. So I want you to think about that. 
She's a young girl. She's already old enough in their culture in the first century to be betrothed to a man, Joseph. Joseph, we presume, is a little older than Mary. He has learned a trade. He is financially viable. He can provide for a family. So here's how it worked in the ancient world in the first century in the life of Israel. Mary was completely dependent upon her father. And she submitted herself as a Jewish girl to the authority of her father. It was her father's job to find her a husband. Joseph's father, it was his job to find his son a wife. So Joseph respected his father and submitted himself to his father's authority. So these two fathers in Nazareth had made the decision. Their children would marry. And once that decision was made, and these children were of age, Mary, 14 years old or so, Joseph, a tad older, an official legal relationship began. It was known as betrothal. And here's how it worked. The father of the groom, Joseph's father, would pay the father of the bride a price agreed upon by the two men. The reason for that was the father of the bride, Mary, was going to lose a worker from his family. She was going to go and join another family. The father of the groom was inheriting a new worker. She would be productive in whatever their family business was. So the father of the bride had to give a price to replace the loss of that worker. Does that make sense? So these two fathers have already agreed upon this. So the price has been paid. According to the story, both Matthew's account and Luke's account now, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. It's, it, it, sometimes we use the word engagement, but that word to me, it loses a little bit in our culture because the word engagement to us is not as binding. In their culture, to be betrothed means they were as good as married. And the only way to separate from a betrothal was to grant a divorce to the couple. As a matter of fact, if you read Matthew's account, Matthew is referred to as Mary's husband already. So here's how it worked. Once the betrothal was in place and all the arrangements had been made, the girl would do one of three things. She would stay at home with her parents until they had some type of a ceremony. Sometimes she would go ahead and exert her independence from her family of origin and she would move in with friends, making the preparation that she was to be separated from her home. She was no longer going to be under the authority now of her dad. Or she would actually live with her betrothed, and they would be together. However, until the final arrangement was made for marriage, they did not live in marital union. Mary and Joseph are at that point. They are betrothed, but they've not consummated their marriage. And this is where we find this story. And so, in the midst of that life circumstance, here's this young couple just living their lives. Mary and Joseph, and they live in Nazareth, which is a town in northern Israel. Not Jerusalem, not the capital city. This is a town that was founded by men and women who'd moved there from Bethlehem many years ago. The word Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means the root, which ties in, of course, to the prophecy in the Old Testament that this Messiah one day would be from the shoot, the root of Jesse from the Nazir, if you will, of Jesse. And so here they are just living their lives in Nazareth. As a matter of fact, Nazareth sometimes was spoken of pejoratively in the first century. 
There were even Jews who would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's where they lived. So on a random day to her, normal, ordinary day, an angel appears to Mary, 14-year-old girl. Now, how did she know it was an angel? Did he have a name tag that said, Gabriel, angel from heaven? Did he have wings? Did he glow in the dark? Was he suspended somehow? Was he translucent? Here's what we don't know. We don't know any of that. All we know is, unmistakably, clearly, she knew this is an angel from God. And Gabriel identified himself. And he said to Mary, Mary was startled. Well, why, why, would, why would an angel speak to me? I'm just, I'm just a young maiden. I'm just, I'm just about to be married. I'm just, I'm just about to start my life with Joseph. I mean, we, we're, we're young. We've got our whole lives ahead of us. Why, why would an angel speak to me? And God says, Mary, you are favored. And you've been chosen by God. And you're going to have a baby. And Mary said, this can't be. She said, you know, I, I, I'm betrothed, but I, I'm not living in marital union with my husband, so I, 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 can't, I can't have a baby. The seed of the woman, y'all remember? Are y'all still with me? The seed of the woman. So the angel says, Mary, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be the son of God. Meanwhile, Joseph, just living his life in Nazareth, preparing for a wife, honing his skill as a businessman, wants to make sure he can provide for his wife and his family. And at some point in this story, Mary tells Joseph, I'm going to have a baby. Now Joseph, according to Matthew's gospel, Joseph knows it's not his baby. So now Joseph is in a quandary. He's a good man, the Bible says. He doesn't want to embarrass Mary. So he decides to just divorce her, which is what he would have to do. And he would do it in a way that as best he could would hold her privacy. But guess what happened to Joseph? An angel came to see Joseph. And the angel said, Joseph, don't you be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her, that seed of the woman is from the Holy Spirit She's going to have a baby, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. And here's what the Bible says, y'all. Mary and Joseph, this, this little couple, this, this young couple, decide to obey God and take a step of faith. I guess I, I just want to say to y'all this morning, let's don't let that be lost on us. Think about it. Have you ever... Have you ever been prompted by God to do something and it was going to require you to take some kind of step of faith and as best you could tell, there's no way it would work out? Has that ever happened to you? Where you felt like the Lord was moving, challenging you, and you just, you just couldn't see it. What do you do then? How do you respond when you feel like God's prompting you to do something? Mary and Joseph are great examples for us. Because, you know, here's the thing, y'all. You never know what God's going to do with your obedience. You, you just never know. You may not step onto center stage. I mean, Mary and Joseph, my goodness, stepped on center stage. They didn't know. This is, but that's what happened to them. Mary figured it out, though. She said, you know, I'm going I'm to be blessed for generations. Well, yeah, she's right. She's the mother of our Lord. 
But she just obeyed. That's what Joseph did. Well, you never know when you follow a prompting what God will do with it and how it just might affect this cosmic drama because you don't know. That's why you and I have got, just got to be obedient. When we get those inner promptings, whatever it is, just living your life every day and you get that sense from God, do this, you do it. You know, there was a Sunday school teacher. His name was Edward Kimball. He was teaching Sunday school at a church in Chicago in 1854 to teenage boys. Now, let's think about that for a second. Any of y'all ever taught Sunday school to teenage boys? That's what he was doing. Well, he had one boy in particular. In those days, these boys came to church not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Their parents made them. He had a certain boy in his class, and he knew he didn't want to be there, and he knew his mom and daddy made him. And He said he woke up one day, and he had a prompting to go visit that boy, 17-year-old boy in his class, and he worked at a cobbler shop there in Chicago, and he said, I, I just feel like I'm supposed to go talk to him, so he went to see him, and he told him, he said, you know, I know you don't want to come to Sunday school, no, sir, I know the only reason you're there is because your mom and daddy make you come, yes, sir, he said, but I just want to tell you something, God has spoken to me about you, and I just, I just believe you need to know what this gospel really is, and I think you need to give your life to it. And y'all, that boy gave his life to Christ in that cobbler shop when he was 17. His name was Dwight L. Moody. Now, Dwight L. Moody would answer a call to ministry, and he would go on and become this incredible evangelist, and he would preach here, there, and yon. School was established. It bears his name to this day. Dwight L. Moody felt led to conduct a revival one day. He went to this city and he began to preach the gospel. There was a young man whose parents made him go to the services. His name was J. Wilbur Chapman. And J. Wilbur Chapman gave his life to Jesus under the preaching of D.O. Moody. He decided God had called him to ministry. And he began to preach. And he became an evangelist. And he was preaching a revival service in Chicago and there was a young professional baseball player who decided to come to the services, somewhat known for his carousing, and the lifestyle that he lived was not consistent really with attending revivals, but God was under conviction. So he went, and under the preaching of J. Wilbur Chapman, one night, he gave his life to Jesus. His name was Billy Sunday. So Billy Sunday quit professional baseball, and he became a preacher. And he started preaching and teaching the gospel, and he was preaching a revival service and a young man came up to him and said, I've been trying to figure out what to do with my life. I've become a Christian, but just hearing you preach is just a reminder that this is what God's called me to do. That man's name was Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham became a preacher, evangelist. He preached here, there, and yon. And in 1934, he was hosting a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there was a young teenage boy who lived just outside of Charlotte, and his mom and daddy wanted him to go to this revival because they'd heard of Mordecai Ham. His name was Billy Frank. He didn't want to go because he didn't really care about it. But his parents told him, we really want you to go, and they convinced his best friend to take him, Grady Wilson. So they went. They got there, and it was so crowded, they made him sit in the choir. Two teenage boys. Well, that night under the preaching of Mordecai Ham, Billy Frank gave his life to Jesus. You know him as Billy Graham. And you know, before Billy Graham died, as best we can tell, he shared the message of Jesus with over 2 billion people. 
Don't you think about that for a second. If you go all the way back to 1854, there was a teenage boy Sunday school teacher that just felt prompted to go talk to one boy about Jesus. And that one conversation, just because of his willingness to be obedient, ended up resulting in someone like Mordecai Ham, Billy Sunday, J. Wilbur Chapman, Billy Graham, finding their way in ministry. I say that to say this to you. You have no idea when you get that inner prompting, when God calls you to do something. You have no idea how that may connect to this grand story that God's at work in already. And you become, of that, you become a part of that cosmic drama. And one day when we get to, set to heaven, we're going to see how it all fits together. So let me challenge you. When you get that message from God, as ludicrous as it may seem, as hard as it may be to pull off, you know what the angel told Mary? Nothing's impossible with God. Be obedient. You got to trust God. You know, when Baylor was playing for the national championship in basketball a couple years ago, beat Gonzaga. Y'all remember that? Nobody thought Baylor, well, my gosh, Gonzaga's best team in America, undefeated, and Baylor just wore them out. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're watching the game, and Cindy hadn't seen Gonzaga play all year, and she said, you know, Gonzaga's just not any good. I said, honey, they're the best team in America. We're just better than them. So there was a pastor who was watching that game, Pastor John. He tells a story. He said he was watching that game, and he, he couldn't get it on television, so he was watching it on his computer. He was traveling somewhere, and he said the problem was his computer, the audio was ahead of the video. He said as the game wore on, the worse it got. He said, so I'm hearing the announcer say, basket made by Baylor. He said, but I'm watching, and Baylor's just dribbling. He said, but I finally learned to trust the announcer's voice because he was ahead of me, and what he said actually happened. Now I'm here to tell y'all, you can trust God because he's ahead of you, and the audio's in front of the video, and if you'll trust him, sooner or later, it'll all catch up. But you got to learn to trust his voice and be obedient. That's what Mary and Joseph did. Mary and Joseph didn't glow in the dark. Who do you think they talked to about this? Do you think Mary was standing at the well one day getting water and all of her girlfriends were gathered around her and said, hey, hey, how are y'all doing? Hey, you know the angel Gabriel. Y'all know Gabriel? He came to see me the other night. You think Mary talked about this? No. Who's she going to talk to about it? Who's going to believe it? So she and Joseph, they, they carry this, this secret. Now they talk to Elizabeth about it. Maybe their parents. But at some point, it boils down to just a young couple taking a step of faith and God changed the whole world. Now you may not find yourself on center stage, but you're on a stage. And you may not feel like you're the main thread, but you're a thread. And your thread is getting woven in with mine and yours and yours and yours, and God is weaving a tapestry together. And so you and I have got to be obedient. So let's learn from Mary. Let, let, let me just show you a couple things real quickly from page one. Can I do that just real quick? Let's talk about the Annunciation. That's where the angel makes the announcement. If you still have your Bibles on, back in verse 26, page one, this is the Annunciation. Sometimes we think the focus is on Mary. The focus is not really on Mary. It's on Jesus. <laughs> Obviously, Mary plays a huge role, but the focus is on Jesus. This message is not just about who Mary is going to be. What is the message? This message is about Jesus. John the Baptist was the focus of the last story. Now there's a heavenly announcement. 
Now, y'all, we'll give Mary her due. My goodness, Mary's the mother of our Lord. We know that we have brothers and sisters in our Christian family, the Roman Catholic Church, who has deep affection for Mary. You know that. Mary's referred to by them as Theotokos, the mother of God. There's a whole doctrine around Mary in the Roman Catholic Church. What's taught about Mary in the Roman Catholic tradition is that she was conceived immaculately. It's called the Immaculate Conception. Some people mistake that as Protestants. We, we think that's about the birth of Jesus. That's about the birth of Mary. The Immaculate Conception means that Mary was born without a sin nature, that God oversaw her birth. And then the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary had never had any other children, that her virginity was not violated as a mom. The bodily assumption of Mary, that her body was actually taken into heaven without decay. There's some who believe in the co-redemptrix role of Mary, that she's the queen of heaven. All that is this whole doctrine called Mariology. While we don't ascribe to all of that, I would just tell you for us as Baptists, it wouldn't hurt us every once in a while to pay homage to the mother of Jesus. Because that is who she is. But the story's not about Mary, really. Her obedience is on the human stage, but the story's about Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, what the angel said, when you go back and read the Annunciation, you start in verse 29 or so. The angel says to Mary, don't be afraid, verse 30. You're going to give birth to a son. Well, who is Jesus? He's the son of David. He's the Holy One. He's the Eternal King. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of God. That's why we celebrate his birth. <laughs> he is unlike any other human being who's ever lived. He's the God-man. He's the Holy One. He's in the lineage of David. He rules over David's kingdom. He's the Son of the Most High, the Son of God himself. How is all that possible? Through the Holy Spirit. You read about the Holy Spirit, Luke 1 and 2. It's amazing how often the Holy Spirit's mentioned. Just go back and read it. The Holy Spirit is a part of all this. The Holy Spirit fills John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit overwhelms Mary, chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, verse 41. The Holy Spirit speaks to Simeon later in Luke 2. But then, let me just offer a quick word to you this morning about this song that we just read. Scholars call it the Magnificat. That's a, it's a Latin word. In the first service, we had an ensemble that sang it, as I mentioned. And so the Magnificent, that's the song of Mary, what we just read. What, what happens in the Magnificent? Well, a couple things real quick. Glory. What does Mary do? She gives glory to God. Well, that's what we do. That's what the angels did. This moment is a reflection of the glory of God, the birth of Christ. But Robert Stein has written a wonderful commentary on Luke. He says this, the Magnificent is a declaration that the kingdom of God is characterized by what he calls sovereign reversals. That's what's in the Magnificent. The lowly are made high. The arrogant are brought low. God brings mercy to the lowly. The kingdom of God's upside down. The goal is not earthly success, but obedience to God. In other words, everybody's written into the script. This is not just for the royal and the holy. It's for everybody. It's for people like Mary, people like Joseph. Common, ordinary, everyday people. This is stories for me and you. And so God has a role for all of us to play. It's a simple story. An ordinary couple from Nazareth, not from Jerusalem, not of royal lineage. And yet they were connected to David, this unknown couple. But then, what else I learned in the Magnificent is this. And don't forget it, y'all. God remembers and fulfills his promises. That's what Mary declares. She says in verse 54, he's remembered. You know how he remembered? By sending Jesus. That's how God remembers things. He, he acts. So I want to tell you all this morning, do you ever think God has forgotten you? I've got news for you. He hasn't. Do you think God forgets his promises? No, 
He's not like me and you. <laughs> God keeps his promises. He's never forgotten you. Now, here's the challenge you're going to face with God. His timetable's different than yours. And sometimes I let him know that because, see, I know better when things ought to happen. And I tell God that sometimes. Lord, you don't know what it's like down here. See, I'm down here living in it. And what you need to know is now's the time to do this right here. We don't need to wait any longer on this. You know, God's never been late, not one time. God shows up right on time, his time. But he has not forgotten his promise. It's been 400 years. 400 years Israel had not heard a word from God. There were many who thought God's forgotten us. God hadn't forgotten. God was just getting everything ready. And just at the right time, he remembered his promise and he sent his son so the last thing I tell you this morning is just a precursor to next Sunday. If you want to just sum it up, y'all, the point is Jesus is the Redeemer. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. That's who he is. Because you see, what do we need? Jesus is the focal point of all this. See, here's what I'd tell you about Christians. We're going to celebrate Christmas, and here's what most of the people in our society are going to do. They're going to celebrate that he was born. And that's okay. We will too. But y'all, we're Christians. We don't just celebrate that he was born. We celebrate why he was born. Because see, we know why. <laughs> what do we need? Do we need to be reasoned with? Yeah. Do we need to be taught? Sure. D do we need to be ruled over? Yes. None of those are our deepest needs. You know what our deepest need is? To be saved. So guess who God sent? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. <laughs> he sent who we really need. And so we'll talk about this next Sunday. You see, Christians, we're not just going to celebrate that Jesus came. We're going to celebrate why Jesus came. So my hope and prayer is, is that God will use me and you as we're living in a culture that celebrates that he came, that we'll explain to them why he came. May it be so.